Hey, Midtown family, this is John Ludovina, our downtown pastor of Family Discipleship. If you are new and looking to find out more about our church, we'd love to help you get connected. The easiest next step for you is to go to our homepage and fill out the online connect card, and we will reach out to you later this week. Currently, our life groups are meeting virtually or in person on Sundays to worship and learn together by watching the sermon. We'd love to help you connect with a life group that is meeting near you. Now, while this is not ideal in many ways, we have been really thankful to Jesus that because we build our church around life groups, this transition hasn't been as hard as it could have been in a worldwide pandemic. In the midst of this very strange season, we are all doing the best we can to reject anxiety or arrogance where we act like we know exactly what to do. Instead, we are fighting to follow Jesus in seeking to love each other with patience and grace, no matter what our different perspectives are. We're making room for people with differing opinions to all seek after Jesus together. For those of you who are really struggling, missing that larger group setting, I do have great news. Next week on August 30th, we'll be hosting another night of prayer and worship at 7.30 in the parking lot of our downtown church. This is an opportunity to worship Jesus together, pray for him to work in us and in our city, and also support one of our Serve the City partners. This month, we are supporting Ezekiel Ministries by donating educational materials. Ezekiel does incredible work helping at-risk youth in the two-notch corridor of downtown Columbia. A full list of needed donations is available on our events page. I'd love to see massive piles of donations next week as we show Jesus' love in the midst of this pandemic. Also, don't forget to bring a lawn chair, your mask, and a smartphone or other device for you to pull up the lyrics to the songs that we'll be singing together. I love being one of your pastors and helping lead our church family towards Jesus, who is completely certain, no matter how uncertain this season may be. I love you guys, and I'm praying for you. You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, Go to MidtownColumbia.com. All right, good to be with you, uh, both uh, those of you who are in the room with me and then everybody on video. We are, uh, as you know, we're taking the fall to look at the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous uh, sections of teaching. And we are meeting in groups both midweek and on Sundays to discuss it and apply it into our lives as we try to creatively be the church, even in the midst of everything that's going on right now. And so as we said last week, the Sermon on the Mount serves as Jesus's introduction to his new way of life that he came to bring and usher in, a new way to be human. He talks about it as his kingdom, where the good, right reign and rule of God is most experienced and felt and realized. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is in a way his introduction to his new administration. It's a little bit like his inaugural address where he's saying, this is what my kingdom, my administration is going to be about. These are the values. I'm going to replace the old way of doing things with a new way of doing things. The old kingdom of this world with a a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In the section of scripture we'll look at today, Jesus begins to give some of the values and the characteristics that he's going to teach and prioritize throughout his ministry. So let's just hop right in and get to work today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to cue that up, Matthew chapter 5, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. 
Matthew 5, 1 through 12. It says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these ideas that Jesus just stated here are going to continue to get unpacked throughout his ministry. He's going to tell parables about these ideas. He'll challenge people who do not embody these values or these characteristics. He's going to draw near to those who do embody these values and these characteristics. And then, of course, he himself perfectly embodies them. And eventually Jesus will give his life as a substitute sacrifice for you and I who do fall short of them. And then he'll send his spirit to then empower us to live into them. So this is a condensed list of the sort of community that Jesus came to create, the types of people for whom his kingdom is especially good news. It would be possible to do a whole sermon on each of these. Uh, what I want to do just for our short time today is instead look at them as one collected whole and try to get some of the, some of the bigger ideas that Jesus puts across in this collection of statements that he makes, these blessings that he pronounces. You probably noticed that's the theme, the idea of a blessed life, what it means to live a blessed life. He uses that word blessed or blessed nine times in just those 12 verses. This, uh, this section of scripture is often called the Beatitudes because of the Latin word for blessed or happy. The Greek word for blessed is makarios. It literally means happy. Makar is the Greek word for happy. It means a state of well-being. It corresponds to the Hebrew word shalom, so right relationship with God, right relationship with others, a right relationship with ourselves, and a right relationship with all of creation. So all those ideas are involved with this idea of the blessed life or the happy life. And there's a few different English words that we could use. We could say Jesus is talking about happiness. We could say that he's talking about joy, about contentment, about the good life. And there are nuances to all of those English words. And sometimes people like to say, you know, happiness isn't the same thing as joy. And that's fine. I just want to dodge all that today and just say he's talking about all of it. The whole idea of it. He's talking about the state of well-being that you and I want. Whatever word you choose it's what we're after. It's the good life that we're after, this sense of rightness and okayness of life, this state of well-being that everybody wants. And he's saying, because of my coming and the kingdom of God being brought to bear on the earth, this is what the good life actually looks like. This is what happiness actually looks like. This is what joy actually looks like. This is the blessed life. That's the big idea. So let's think about it like this. 
what, what would you say are the ingredients to a good life? If you asked an American on the street, how do you think they would answer that question? What do you need to be happy? What are the, what are the necessary ingredients for a good life, for a happy life, for a blessed life? I think most people here would say that for a good, full, happy life, we need love. We need uh, acceptance. We need a group that we sense that we belong to. We need some amount of approval and, and friendship. I think a lot of people would say that you need enough money. Maybe it's that you need to be rich. Maybe you just need to have enough money so that you don't have to worry about money. But I think that would be involved. You need some level of material comfort. I think people would say we need the ability to do what we want when we want. We can't have other people controlling us. I think that people would, in some words or other words, say some version of to have a happy life, you have to learn to love yourself. You have to learn to accept yourself. You need a positive self-view or you need good self-esteem. I think many people would say that you have to assertively prioritize your own happiness. You have to strive for your own happiness. At least that's what I hear all the time, that nobody's going to look out for you if you don't. But sometimes you have to do what makes you happy above other things. I think people might would say you need to do something that you know makes a difference in the lives of others. You got to have some amount of, of purpose. I think we would say romantic and sexual fulfillment is mandatory for happiness. And I think we would definitely tie happiness to a certain quality of life where overall there's some, some health and some stability and some circumstances are favorable. I think of this, you know, this is what I see if I look online on Instagram and there's something about blessed life Hashtag blessed. It's almost always a body of water, a beverage, a group that, you're, that you enjoy, family or friends or something. And generally speaking, circumstances are good. And so we are calling it a blessed life. So in other words, I think if Americans put together our own list of beatitudes, it would sound a little more like, blessed are the rich because they can do what they want. Blessed are you when you accept yourself, for you will find inner peace. Blessed are the sexually and romantically fulfilled, for there is no other path to joy. Blessed are those who believe in themselves, for they will accomplish their goals. Blessed are the influencers and people who are very put together. Blessed are those who are rising in their careers, no matter the cost. I think it would sound a little more like that. And if you look around, these are what lots of teachers and self-help gurus earn money doing, is helping you accomplish those beatitudes. Here's how to accumulate wealth. Here's how to be a better leader or influencer. Here's how to make friends and influence people. Here's how to do self-care and prioritize yourself. Here's how to be proud of who you are and where you come from and believe in what you're capable of. And then along comes Jesus and he just says the exact opposite. I mean, just absolutely polar opposite to what I think we would say are our actual beliefs about what makes life good and what makes people happy. I think if we weren't so familiar with some of Jesus's teachings, we'd write it off as nonsense. It's so, so different. Here's what Jesus just said. Let me give you three things today. He said, number one, true happiness is not based on our circumstances. In fact, those two are not linked in any meaningful way. Number two, he just said that true happiness can only be found as a byproduct. 
a byproduct of giving yourself to something more important than your own happiness. And then number three, Jesus just said that true happiness can only be found when you realize you can't find it on your own. So let's look back at a few of the statements that we just read. Let me show you what I mean by by each of those, and hopefully it'll lead to some good discussion with your life group. Number one, Jesus says true happiness is not based on our circumstances. Look back with me at verse four, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So when he says those who mourn, it means you're grieving negative circumstances. That's what mourning is. I'm lamenting, I'm grieving bad circumstances. And then he ends the section by saying we're blessed if people don't like us, mistreat us, and say really awful things about us. Look at verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It means you're mistreated because you're trying to do the right thing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In, uh, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, Frederick Dale Brunner, or Brunner, not sure how he pronounces his last name, says, quote, first and literally, the Beatitudes are Jesus' surprisingly countercultural God bless you's to people in God awful situations. Almost all of us think happiness is found in a set of circumstances. In fact, our word happiness has the same root as happening. We, we connect happiness to what's happening. And as long as the right thing happens, I can be happy. But if the right thing doesn't happen, then I cannot be happy. I think this comprises most of our commercials and advertisements. Do you experience a lack of deep and profound happiness? If so, then perhaps buying our product could solve that problem for you. You must not be drinking the right beer. You must not be going on the right vacation. Purchasing our product will bring to you the happiness you long for. I mean, nearly everywhere you turn, our culture attaches circumstances to happiness. And then here's Jesus saying, for example, happy are those who mourn. Tears streaming down your cheeks joy in your soul. Why? How? how? Well, he actually says it right there. It's in Jesus' kingdom, I've been made right with God, so now I have a God who comforts me. That's how he ends, blessed are those who mourn. It says, for they shall be comforted. And when people misrepresent me or speak evil of me or reject me or mistreat me in Christ, I can still be blessed. Why? But he said it. Great is your reward in heaven. So in Christ, the reward of having people like me is actually overwhelmed by the superior reward of heaven. Example, uh, most of you have experienced tragedy and loss and actually found Jesus to be completely right. Many of you have, maybe not most. Um, this doesn't come near some of the, some of the things that, that you guys have gone through. But when I was in college, my apartment complex burned down 
all of it all the way down. Everything that I owned was gone except for what I was wearing in the moment. And I'll never forget the next night I was at a campus ministry and we were having a time of, of worship. We were singing and having this realization as I'm singing songs to God about how good and faithful he is and about how he's enough I will never forget the sense of joy that I had because in that moment, I realized what I was singing was true. That I had lost everything that I had owned and I was okay because I had God and he was enough for me. And I I would argue my sense of happiness and joy actually increased because of the negative circumstances that I experienced. I would say that I found that Paul was right When he said, I can be content in all circumstances through Christ who gives me strength. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced moments like that. You will never be freer than when you realize circumstances no longer have the power over you than they used to. They still matter. They're just not the determining factor in our joy and in our happiness. And so a Christian is someone who can weep and still be blessed because we have a deeper joy than circumstances that we might be mourning. So the question is, if your life did not change at all from this moment forward, would you still be happy? Could you be okay with it? If your marital status doesn't change, your career doesn't progress, your body never feels better, could you actually have true happiness in your soul. You know, the truth is almost none of the things we think we need to be happy actually happened to Jesus. And uh, honestly, he lived what some of us would say is our worst fear. He was never married, never had sex, never owned a home. He was abandoned by his friends, misunderstood, maligned. He wasn't in the majority power group. He was hated by both the religious powers and the governmental powers. He was falsely accused experienced a false trial, and he was executed even though he never did anything wrong. Jesus lived a God-awful life, and he's literally the most God-blessed human who ever walked the face of the planet. And according to Jesus, happiness is not rooted in a set of circumstances, but is the result of being rightly related to God. It's the first thing that we learn. Here's number two. True happiness can only be found as a byproduct can only be found as a byproduct. I'll do this one quickly just for the sake of of time. And I just want to give you this category for you to reflect on later because I think you might realize some things if if you'll spend some time processing this one. Happiness is a byproduct. So notice here that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who seek blessedness. He never says that. He doesn't say blessed are those who seek blessedness. He says blessed are those who seek something else, something that he would actually say is more important, a higher calling. Blessed are those who seek righteousness, mercy, peace. So this is one of the ways that modern folks are just completely wrong, just absolutely categorically wrong. How often are we faced with a decision and some well-meaning person says, well, you just need to do what makes you happy. In other words, Your own happiness should be your highest pursuit. People say things like, you can't 
put others ahead of yourself or they'll walk all over you. Or if you let others go first, they'll begin to think that you should go last. And a hundred other ways that Jesus sees the world very differently than modern Americans do. Jesus here just said that the only way to find happiness or blessedness is to pursue other more important goals. He says, blessed are those who, for example, mercifully put others ahead of themselves. Blessed are those who do what is right, no matter what it's gonna cost them or how it's gonna hurt them. Once again, my guess is many of you have found this to be true if you'll think about it. That there have been times in your life where doing the right thing was harder or costlier, but you did it anyway. And you look back on it and you're glad that you did. You found a deeper joy because of it. And I guess that all of us, myself included, would have times that we could look back on and say, okay, all right, this is the right thing to do, but that's gonna hurt. That, I think, would make me happier. And so I'm not gonna do what I think is the right thing to do. I'm gonna do what I think would make me happier. And we look back on those moments as some of our greatest regrets in life. Your own happiness is not a high enough goal to live for. And if you pursue it at all costs, it will eventually, ironically, leave you emptier. If all you do is what's best for you, you will never find what's best for you. If all you do is what's best for your family, you will never find what's best for your family. Blessedness, happiness can only be found as a byproduct of pursuing something more important. That's the second thing that Jesus teaches us here. And then here's number three. True happiness can only be found when you realize you cannot find it on your own. Look back with me at the very first statement that Jesus makes. He says, blessed, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So who gets the kingdom and all of its blessings? Jesus says it's the poor in spirit. There's actually a couple of words, different words for poor. So one word for poor means paycheck to paycheck. The other word means totally destitute. There is no paycheck. And that one is the strongest word for poverty. And it's the word that Jesus uses here. It's the poorest of the poor. And in fact, it has a little bit of a condescending tone to it. It means those who are lowly, those who are marginalized. It's actually an onomatopoeia. The word sounds like what it represents. And so the Greek word sounds like you're spitting. When you pronounce the Greek word that Jesus uses here, I'm not even gonna try to attempt it, but when you pronounce the word, it sounds like you're spitting because that's who we're talking about. We're talking about people who are spit upon, the outcasts of society, the despised, and those are the kinds of poor that Jesus is talking about. He chooses the strongest possible word at his disposal to communicate the lowliness and the looked down upon-ness. It means that not just that you fail, but you feel your failure. It means not just that you lack, but you feel your lack. That you deeply understand when you're poor in spirit, you deeply understand that you lack the resources in life, in yourself to face life's challenges. Jesus says there's a blessing that comes with realizing this about yourself. That great things happen in a person's life when they realize they don't have what it takes and they turn to God for help. Let me give you an overly simplistic illustration. Last week, I was building Legos with my youngest son, Graham. He is two. 
And at one point, there were a couple of pieces that were stuck together, and he wanted them to be separate so we could do different things with them. And he, he looked at me and he said, I do it. I do it. Okay? And so he starts working on trying to get these pieces apart. And I'm sitting there thinking, this would literally take me two seconds. And I sat there and watched him fumble around with these two pieces for what felt like an hour. It was probably only a couple minutes, but it felt like, felt like half of the day, to be honest with you. And finally, he realized he was not going to get them apart. And I was just watching him, and sadness just hit him as he just was like, and he goes, I not do it. And then he looked at the Lego, and he looked at me. And then he looked back at the Lego, and he looked back at me, and I just could tell what he was computing. He was realizing, oh, I I could ask my dad for this. And then he goes, Daddy do it. And he gives it to me and I immediately in one half of a second pull the pieces apart and we move forward. And I I just can't help but think that sometimes you and I are like a two-year-old child trying to do something in our own strength when we're sitting beside the almighty sovereign of the universe ready and waiting to help us. Now that illustration falls apart in a thousand different ways. Please don't ponder it deeply. Uh, My goal for Graham is to teach him to get out of my house and take care of his own problems so that he no longer needs my fatherly help and I just get to be his friend. This is not how God relates to us. We are in a position of continual need before God and he is in a posture of continual desire to help us. That we have God's power at our disposal if we will simply step into our need and our lack The problem is the kingdom of the world does not value poverty of spirit. We value proud and strong. We value believing in ourselves. We say you are stronger than you think and your voice matters and your opinion is important. So rise up. When are these colonies going to rise up? You have to love yourself and accept yourself And if you don't love yourself, then you can't love others. And so so long as you believe that your greatness comes from within you, you can accomplish any dreams that you have. And then Jesus comes and he says, no, in order to belong to the kingdom of God, first, you have to be poor in spirit. First, you have to acknowledge and own my problems are beyond me, that I can't save myself, I need help, that I'm not competent to deal with my own problems. This is the number one prerequisite requirement for entering the kingdom of God. You cannot come to Jesus as if he's a self-help enrichment course, as like, I can do it, Jesus can help. So if you're thinking, my life is lacking a bit in friendships, so let me see if Jesus can help. It's not gonna work. If you're thinking, I pretty much like my life and I'm doing okay, but I do have some slight inner emptiness and maybe some spirituality could be what I'm missing. It's not going to work. If you're around because you just want your kids to have some moral foundations, and so you're at church for them while they're young, I get it. I'm not mad at you. I'm just being honest with you that it's not going to work. It's not how Jesus operates. He's not going to do that for you. He does not simply help. He saves. He redeems. He transforms. He delivers from one kingdom to an altogether different kingdom. He ushers in a reversal of the world's values. He flips everything on its head. So if you're thinking, I got to get right with God so he'll fix my circumstances and give me a spouse and a better job and a little bit of comfort, 
You're missing the whole point. God wants to give you himself in such a way that you no longer need those things. This is a principle that you can apply across the broad spectrum of the Christian life as well. Uh, People who feel capable on their own as parents will not experience the power of God in their parenting. When you feel capable on your own in your ministry and your job and your relationships, you're not going to experience the power of God. It's when we depend on God and not ourselves that we access God's power. God only fills empty hands. Uh, This is part of the reason why support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and other anonymous groups have such a high success rate and are so helpful as they've actually dialed in on this principle. This is the first step in many anonymous type groups such as AA. The first step, we admit we're powerless over our problems. You can't even start until you're there. It's the gateway to the help that you need. You have to say, I did my best, I tried, and I've come to the end of my ability. I don't have what it takes. Digging deep and believing in myself was not enough. I need outside help. And some of us, our biggest problem is that we're just good enough at life to convince ourselves we aren't desperate for God's help. So we're not poor in spirit, and I've said this before, we're middle class in spirit. On normal days, I'm fine. I've got an emergency fund. I don't need outside help. When a pandemic hits, I might need some outside help. So we're not rich in spirit. That would be the worst. Rich people never need help. We need help when things get really, really bad. And this is why you pray very hard when your life gets really bad. Your prayer life just activates when something bad happens to you. But on a regular day, on Tuesday, not much of an awareness of, God's, of our need for God's help because we're, we're more middle class in spirit than we are poor in spirit. And there's a danger there because when you do have an okay life and when you do have some amount of health and some amount of wealth and you're comfortable or whatever, you don't often sense or feel your deep need for God's abiding presence. I say it more aggressively and and just change it a bit. We love to talk about God accepting us just as we are. We love to say that. God, God accepts us just as we are. And you know that actually only might be true. That's not definitely true, that's maybe true. It might be true that God accepts you as you are, and it might not be true that God accepts you as you are. We need to be more precise and therefore more helpful. If you're proud and self-righteous, and you think you have what it takes for life, God does not accept you as you are. If you think you're omnicompetent and need no help, then it is important to be honest that God does not accept you as you are. You're too full and he only accepts empty people. He cannot fill full hands. He can only fill empty hands. But when we come to God to say, I do not have what it takes. I need your help. I have come to the end of my ability, my power, my strength, my resources. I'm out. Can you help me? That is when God accepts us as we are. Jesus, in fact, repeatedly said, I'm not here for people who think they don't need me. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sick. That's who needs the doctor. And when we come to Jesus empty-handed, we get him. And that's what makes sense of all of this. When we're poor in spirit, Jesus comes near. When we mourn, Jesus comforts us. When we thirst for righteousness, Jesus supplies it. When we're pure in heart, God doesn't stand against us. He draws near to us. When we make peace, God is party to it. When you're persecuted, when you're spoken ill of, when you're mistreated, Jesus is with you. 
And as the psalm says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what it looks like to live the blessed life in Jesus' new kingdom. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you came to establish the good reign and rule of God on the earth. And thank you that you've made the way possible for those of us who know we are failures. God, I pray that you would send your spirit as we discuss these things and as we process these things so that your kingdom might be more and more evident in our midst. And we ask it for your glory and our good. Amen. Love you guys.